Hey, we're back on the fadeaway with Dion Thomas and Eric Schmidt. Dion, when did you realize you crossed the line from athlete to media to the dark side? Well, I wouldn't go so much as to call it the dark side. The media was always good to me for the most part. But when I decided to leave coaching and resign from coaching, it happened fortuitously that a friend of mine that's a producer at the Big Ten Network called me and said, hey, have you ever thought about doing this? And I was like, no, I haven't, but let's give it a shot. So here I am. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, when you treat the media well, I think you, it becomes a lot easier to, to deal with on the next side, too. And I'll tell you what, the media landscape, especially when we were in school, has definitely changed quite a bit. Uh, social media making hot takes easy for anyone to publish from anywhere. You can find box scores and highlights right after games now. And that immediacy has really kind of made the morning newspaper a little mm. obsolete, frankly. And today we are joined by Will Leach, who was at the University of Illinois during our time there. I know Will has watched you play basketball. He and I shared press boxes together. And uh, he spent the past 20 years constantly adapting to where media is going. Will, usually I do a little more of an introduction, but listen, man, you have done such a great job of we'll say diversifying your skills i mean what's your elevator pitch what's your story about your career and who your employers are these days oh well thank you first off for having me that's particularly uh, i'm happy to talk to you eric but uh, i will say uh, unlike you i do have a uh, i think my father still has a poster with your co-host and tom michael on it in his garage <laughs> so uh so just know that uh, going into this conversation it's, i'm delighted to talk to you guys uh yeah so you know i went to the university of illinois uh i'm from mattoon illinois which is about an hour south of champaign uh, as i as i always explain to people i live in georgia now and as i always explain to people illinois is basically um Nebraska with Chicago at the top. And uh, I am from the Nebraska part and uh, delighted and honored to be so. Um, but yeah, I went to the University of Illinois. I graduated in 1997. I was there the exact four years that Kiwan Garris was there. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of where I, where I place myself in the in Illinois uh, hierarchy history. But I grew up watching the games on WCIA. And for me, you know, I knew when I went to the University of Illinois that I wanted to write. I always knew I wanted to write. Uh, I started my own newspaper at the, at the University of Illinois. Uh, I'm excuse me, at the, at the Mattoon, uh, Mattoon High School, which didn't have one before. I lived at the Daily Illini. That was all I really wanted to do. But I, the one thing I knew I didn't want to write about was sports <laughs> because I like sports too much. And I was in the, as you talked about, Eric, I was in some of those, a lot of those press boxes while I was in college. I was a stringer for the, for the Post-Dispatch in St. Louis. I was a stringer to the, for the Daily Southtown. I think now defunct Daily Southtown uh, in Chicago, and I was very excited. But I wanted to write about movies. My hero was Roger Ebert, and so for me, I thought, okay, well, I like sports, so I'll write a little about sports. But I would go in those press boxes, and I would look around, and I would see how miserable all those people in the press boxes were. <laughs> like for me, I loved sports, and I was like, well, okay, uh, these people all are complaining about the games being too long. They wish they could just go home. They they're grousing about the food up here. Like I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I just just know I'm not going to write about sports. <laughs> it did not turn out that way, though, because uh, after kind of struggling for a few years, uh, I moved to New York in, in 2000 to make but peddle my wares as a writer and struggled for a long time. But uh, then I started a site called The Black Table with some friends of mine and um, a site called Gawker Media. Uh, which has probably become more famous for Hulk Hogan since I left it, but at the time was a, uh, <laughs> a virtually media empire, um, as, as saw my work and asked me if I wanted to do a website for them. And I said, you know, what I would like to do is to write about sports in a way that makes me like sports, unlike those press boxes I saw back in Champagne at the day. 
you should let me do a sports site. And they said, uh, well, um, that's a really good idea. We're going to ask a lot, but nobody knows who you are. So we're going to ask a bunch of people who they do know who they are if they want to do it and you can assist them. Fortunately for me, they all said no. So they said, and I was cheap. So they said, okay, we'll give it a try. And that site became Deadspin. So Deadspin uh, launched, I started uh, Deadspin in 2005 and I ran it for about three and a half years. And um, it became much more popular than I was prepared for it to become. And um, uh, it was very exciting. It was very kind of fun to be at kind of the beginning of, uh, of that process. And so since then, I still have, I'm still somewhat associated with Deadspin. I don't run it or anything, but I'm still, I still, uh, you know, consult and hang out with those guys. Everyone's, uh, hang out with those, everyone that works there every once in a while. But now I write for New York Magazine. I have a host a show on Sports Illustrated called the Will Leach show. You should, uh, I took it over from some guy who wasn't named Will Leach and therefore was totally unqualified to do that show. <laughs> um, and then I write for uh, the New York Times and Major League Baseball. And uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to write and do a lot of uh, stuff now. But uh, I, I've accepted the fact that uh, on my tombstone, uh, or in the, I guess in the obituary, not in the newspaper, wherever obituaries run when I die, uh, the second line will be Deadspin and will always be. And I think I've made my peace with that. <laughs> Let's hope that's a long ways away. We're not going to talk about those things. It's funny you would say that with the, with Neon and I were just talking about, you know, doing what you love. And then when you're, it becomes a job and all of a sudden you kind of don't want to do it anymore. He was tying it to basketball. You know, he doesn't really play anymore. And, right. you know, it, it, he spent his whole life in the gym and it started as something he loved. Like you and I probably had the same experience with I, that was what I thought I wanted to do as well. And you're right. It was interesting that once you get in there and, and Dion, you didn't, you, I don't know if you ever heard the tone in the press conferences sometimes, but sometimes it was like, let's just get our sound and get out of here. There was, you know. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's not just hearing the sound. And I agree with you uh, 100%. Well, it's like seeing the faces when guys are like, and you could see that they don't really want to be there. Um, that they've gotten sucked into some kind of pit. Uh, God, <laughs> God, I hope there's no overtime today. Right. Oh, my God. And, and now yeah. where I sit on press row, you know, rather it's with the big, well, not so much with the Big Ten Network, but with um, when I'm doing the radio with Brian Barnhart, you can see some of those same guys that are sitting there just like, like it's a, the life is just being sucked out of them. <laughs> you know? So I guess it's great that you have morphed as many yeah. times as you have and so hey kids go into journalism it's great <laughs> <laughs> we're getting we're getting the real life skill experience here well will how did you find yourself getting into so many different pieces of the media side well for you know, me you've written you know, books I, you've, I, you've uh, done you do the I, po podcast you do the tv stuff you've done a little bit of everything which is awesome yeah, all I really want to do is write. It's funny. That's all I've really ever wanted to do. And it's getting into the idea of, of making sure that you still love what you're doing. My One of the ways I kind of shaped Deadspin and really have shaped my career since then is I will only cover things and write about things that I still care about and love because I still want to care about and love those things. I am still uh, – I'll put it this way. I've covered – I've written about Illinois basketball games. I've been going to Illinois basketball games. I've watched so many Illinois basketball games my entire life, and I'm still subscribing to BTN Plus and watching every single one of those games. So, and I'm listening, so like I love Illinois basketball, and I love baseball, and I love movies, and I love all this stuff. I love politics and these things that I get to write about. And, be, and part of the reason for that is I diversify. I don't – I think one of the reasons that people get kind of tired of their job sometimes is because they just you know we live in a culture now that encourages you to specify be specific and be focused on one mm -hmm. uh, little thing and i 
I, I think I would, and whatever it was, even if it was, even if that one thing was just having people say wonderful things about me all the time, eventually you'd get sick of it. Like there's no, I want to do a million things. Like I always want to do uh, all of these things. So for me, you know, writing has always come first. And, uh, you know, you meet a lot of media people who start out writing and then they do a lot of television. The next thing you know, they never write anything anymore. Uh, for me, I, I write and I think of the other stuff, whether it's podcasts or whether it's doing television or whether it's, it's hosting my show. Uh, for me, that is uh, stuff that I do to make sure that I get to keep writing. Um, but uh, writing is the key thing. I write a weekly newsletter, which links to everything that I do, and it has its own essay way too long and I put way too much effort to into every week because writing is the key. It's the reason I, I did anything. And, you know, I, I, it's funny when Deadspin started, I thought that's what everybody wanted to do. I just thought they wanted to write. Uh, to me, the fun of the Internet in the early days of the Internet was, wow, you can just write as long as you want to. That's amazing. I was used to having all my stories cut off by the newspaper <laughs> with a jump. Uh, so uh, it's strange now to see how the web has evolved into this thing that's supposed to be really fast. And and if someone sends me an email longer than two sentences, I'm like, boy, settle down, long-winded guy. <laughs> uh, so you know, I think it's a shame that, that our attention spans have gotten to that point. Because for me, I do all of this stuff because I enjoy it. And I can't, like, I, I just, I'm incapable of doing something that I, I don't enjoy. I just, I can't do it. Uh, you know, I, I hear all of, for me, you know, this is a tough field and um, it's been a tough field for a long time, but it's strange to me to see the compromises that people that go into writing or go into journalism, or go into something creative or media and, but they treat it like this awful job, like they have this terrible accounting job and they're stuck in the back office, like an office space with the stapler and in the, the closet <laughs> wow. somewhere. Like this is supposed to be fun. Like, it's weird for me to see the I, I'll put it this way. If you are in the field of media and you are miserable, you really made a mistake because you could have been miserable as like a corporate lawyer, and made like a lot more money and <laughs> could have been so compensated for, me, for being miserable exactly. for being miserable. So for me, that's my big thing is I, I've knock on wood so far. I've been successful because I still have great enthusiasm for my work. I still can't believe I get to do this. I can't believe I'm getting away with it. I've been doing it for more than 20 years now, and I still kind of can't believe I get to do it. If I lose that, I think I lose what makes me special as a writer and doing all of these other things. So as long as I hang on to that, and my rule is to say yes to everything. Like, I just say yes. Yeah. I say yes to everything all the time. I am writing a bi-weekly uh, Illinois basketball power rankings right now for a site called Smile Politely that does not pay me. I have not asked to be paid. I just like writing about Illinois basketball. <laughs> so I was like, sure, I'll I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so uh, that and there's no all that cost. I don't really get anything out of that other than the satisfaction of doing something I'm really enjoying. And that matters. That matters. That is what that keeps the juices flowing to do the larger projects that do pay a lot of money or do take a lot of uh, extra time or uh, and, and push and push my, uh, my me out of my comfort zone a little bit. As long as I'm still having fun, I feel like I'll be OK. And, and you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're 100 percent right. And, and I love the enthusiasm. I love hearing it in your voice. This is when I coach. This was always one of the things I would tell my players is you have to love what you're doing. If you don't love what you're doing, then you might as well move on and, and find something else to do, because just like that, it becomes work and it becomes a, a drag on on who you are. You talked about your enthusiasm, your love and how you've always wanted to write. And I'm going to take you all the way back to high school where you didn't have a newspaper. What gave you the courage to say, oh, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this. And, and the reason I ask is because I talk to and I speak at a lot of high schools and to a lot of kids and they don't have, you know, I find that a lot of kids are, are, are afraid of what others think, feel, or going to say about them. 
How did you get, how did you get, did you deal with that? Did you get, how did you get by it? What was one of the things, if you had a kid in front of you now, you would tell him. Yeah, it was a little easier for me because, well, social media didn't exist then. So I didn't have to like, I wasn't 15 years old and going to bed and watching people make fun of my braces on Instagram, which I assume (laughs) is what would have happened if I had been uh, social media then. But uh, for me, my hero growing up, was actually not related to sports at all. Um, it was Roger Ebert. It was the writer, uh, the movie critic Roger Ebert, who you know, of course, is from Champaign or from Urbana. And uh, when I was young, had the week had the weekly television show syndicated throughout the country, Siskel and Ebert, and was to me, I was from I said a small kind of farm town uh, in central Illinois, and he was from where I was from, and he was uh, well read and erudite and had all of these thoughts about the world and got to see all of these things and 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 watch all these movies and write all these wonderful things. And for me, I thought that's what I want to do because that's my nothing against my hometown, which I love, but it was my ticket out, right? <laughs> like I, right. I, you know, my my father uh, was an electrician. Yeah, uh, and my mother was a nurse uh, in 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 Mattoon for 30, 40 years, and uh, my my dad has eight brothers and sisters, all of which lived in like a fifteen to twenty mile radius of the town. Which again, I loved my town, but I had ambitions, I th- had things I wanted to do, and I felt like I, I wanted to see the world and I wanted to experience life in that kind of way. And and for me, Roger Ebert was kind of a ticket out. If I if I do what he does, if I just learn to write and concentrate on that and and figure out my own voice, that'll help. That'll be my ticket out. And and so for me, uh, and and going to the University of Illinois, he had worked at the Daily Illini, so I was going to go work at the Daily Illini. Now I eventually got to meet Roger Ebert and found that uh, not only that on one hand he was an excellent role model, on the other hand he was so much better of a writer than me that I was kidding myself uh, in the first place. <laughs> but it was at least a good model. So that's kind of the thing for me is. You know, I talk to a lot of journalism students. I go back to the to the U of I uh, once or twice a year and go rot the young the minds of all the young uh, ger- journalists uh, at, at Greg Hall. And one of the things I always tell them, because you know, parents are always concerned about their kids going into a creative field. And on one hand, I get it. I have two sons myself. Uh, they are two. They're seven and four. So they, uh, I, I don't have them working full time yet. But eventually, they're gonna. I don't have to worry about that too much uh, yet with their careers. But for them. You know, I I understand the inclination of wanting to make sure that your kid is stable and has a job and has something set up. But for me, the fun of working in in a creative field like this and the thing I I always kind of tell them is you get to live an interesting life. Sure, you're not. It's a lot more interesting than sitting in the same cubicle for 35 years and having and and only leaving when they when they all celebrate the the someone's birthday in the break room and you all have to sign <laughs> the card. Like for me, you know, this is and nothing wrong with that. Nothing against that. We all make our decisions and that's great. But I knew that life wasn't for me. And and I think if you have that kind of fire and you have that kind of desire to to go do something and to do something different, uh, this is just a it's just a terrific field to, to do. And you and you get over yourself pretty quickly. Uh, it's always strange to me. When I see people that work in media, there are exceptions to this, but I, but I, a lot of times I feel like a lot of people that work in media are unnecessarily sensitive to criticism. Like as someone that writes online, and again, I worked at Deadspin, so I got yelled at all day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for me, a large part of the job is like if I wanted uh, to be anonymous and have nobody know what I was doing and no one have thoughts about what I was doing, whether they like it or whether they don't, I could have totally been a banker and I could have sat in the back office and made a bunch of money and never had to worry about anything and, you know, and, and drive myself to work and be perfectly happy. And, and, but I didn't want that. And I think if someone wants, I try to encourage people like your parents want you to be interesting. <laughs> they want you to be fun. And, and, and that's, that's what I like about, about working in this field. And that's what I would tell them is, you know, that you are, um, you are not where you are 
are right now. And I think it's hard for people to understand sometimes, particularly when you're young, that you feel like the place that you live and the place that you grew up and the place that you're, the, the things that you're doing are just like, facts of life. They're foundational principles of the world. And they're not. You can go out and do things and change things and, and fight for them yourself and make your own kind of reality. And and particularly now in the online age, it's a lot easier for crying out loud. When I was in high school, I had no way of getting a hold of my of my heroes of, or my writing heroes or people that I liked. And now I can to drop them a line on Twitter or send a direct message or, or mm -hmm. I can contact people. There's a lot more transparency now. And that's exciting for me. I love hearing from young students who see what I'm doing and are like, oh, I could do it better than that guy <laughs> and, and respond accordingly. <laughs> I love work. To me, that, that kind of ambition and that kind of fire, it's really like a large part of the battle. If you want to do it, you can make it happen. You just have to push yourself to. Well, you did get a chance to, to have a relationship with your hero, with Roger, too. What was that like for you? It was funny. He used to always take um, these students uh, at the Daily Illini out for pizza, Papadels, uh, every uh, every every year. He would always come back. It was every two years. He would always come back and visit. And he knew that I was a film critic. He, I had I had contacted him uh, before. Uh, back when it was R Ebert at CompuServe.edu, I believe <laughs> was his email address. And God, mine and nice. mine was like Illini guy at Hotmail or something. So back back when that was everyone's email addresses. And um and I, I was working at the Daily Illini, and you know that was an instant in. So we got to uh, he actually became like a little bit of a mentor uh, for me for a while uh, until, as I wrote in a famous Deadspin piece uh, that came out of, about uh, in 2010, until I screwed it up and I got cocky and I tried to, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of went through like a punk phase where I was like, kill your idols and tear them down. <laughs> no, you're and, going uh, there today, and, Will, huh? And kind of, <laughs> yeah, and kind of wrote this piece about Ebert that uh, later I ended up, we, we, all, we all made our piece about. But, uh, you know, Ebert was, you know, everything you hear about Ebert was true. He was, uh, he he was incredibly smart, uh, very giving of his time, uh, very uh, eager to work with uh, with with new people, eager to work with different types of people. Uh, I think Ebert, in particular, uh, was one of the first journalists that I knew that took that made a took a special uh, made a special effort to work with uh, women writers and mm. minority writers, and like not just like part of the old boys network that you kind of saw in Chicago newspapers. And I think that's made it that made a big difference for a lot of people. So it was uh, he, he was a great guy that uh, was uh, very kind with his time with with me. Uh, uh, a, a, a kindness that I screwed up at first <laughs> and then hopefully ultimately appreciated. I think, but you fixed it, I think, you know, I hope I, so. and I want to ask, so I'm going to come back to the, to some of the writing. Cause I, cause you put yourself out there quite a bit. Deanna and I were just talking about that before we got on here, but I, I want to go back to Deadspin. What was the intent there when you guys started, you touched on it a little bit and then where is it gone? I mean, for those who aren't familiar, you know, Deadspin, you guys were, amazing site to break stories, uh, to, to get information, to be able to get out there and do those types of things. But then you had the message boards and people were able to interact. And so sometimes you got to be a little bit of a lightning rod for those types of things. And not necessarily you, although some people, you know, as you joke that you used to hear from people all the time yelling at you, a little unfair, I think, but just that became the nature of the site. So my question, I guess, ultimately is from what you intended and where it's become, uh, how, how have those intersected? How have they kind of gone together? Yeah, it's worth noting that when I was doing Deadspin, it was me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's a weird kind of thing. I remember I went to a, a Deadspin event in like 2000. 
2010, 2011, and I was stunned. I went to their office, and I was stunned a that they have an office. B that they have like they have like a receptionist. They have like conference rooms. It was very strange because for me it was it was me and, and Rick Chandler who was a uh, who was kind of my associate editor who basically was on the West Coast. So if anything broke overnight, he could do the the post on. But it was really me. Like I would write like 24 posts a day and 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 be on the phone all morning and email with people all day and just try. It wasn't so much trying to find out like salacious information as much as it was you know, having worked as a traditional quote unquote sports reporter before I knew that a the best stories were always the one that no one's were no one was printing but they were all talking about in the press box so mm-hmm. I knew there was a market for those I knew I could get those because you know the, our earliest readers at Deadspin were frustrated sports journalists they had all these stories that they wanted to tell and couldn't because their editors wouldn't let them or so on and whatnot so they would send them to me and I would run them and it was very exciting and um, so you know that was the idea of the goal of Deadspin initially was really to bridge the gap between the people that work in sports and that go that those are journalists, those are owners, those are managers, those are players to a lesser extent, but I guess somewhat players, media, uh, uh, big media companies, networks, commissioners, all those, the other people that work in professionally in the world of sports and the people that consume sports and love sports and are sports fans, AKA the people actually paying for all of this. <laughs> and I felt like there was a disconnect between them where there was almost like a, like a, like a, like a, a curtain that, that you weren't allowed to go uh, between. And to me, that seemed very silly to me. Uh, and so the goal of Desmond was to bridge that gap a little bit and make that make that more of a gray area in between about who is a media person, who works professionally in sports, and who's actually a fan, and and not having that like velvet rope in between them. And I think that's still a part, big part of Desmond today. Uh, to be honest, it's much it's a much bigger site than when I did it. It's much more ambitious, has a much more massive staff. They just had the Deadspin Awards uh, a couple of weeks ago. There's a picture of the staff, and there's like 40 people. And also, there's a Deadspin Awards. There were tickets, and they had like a band. And and it was a very strange thing to see how kind of big it's come. And, you know, they do a great job with it now. Uh, They they do some stuff I agree with and some stuff I don't disagree with, but that means they're doing their job, right? That means that they're out there uh, in the middle of the conversation. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think that they are a more... Uh, they are more willing uh, to engage with the world outside of sports than I might have been in 2007. Uh, I have to say, maybe I wish I, I would have been a little bit more like them, to be honest. Uh, I, I think they're doing a great job, and and uh, I'm really I'm just impressed of what they do. And I know I know they're polarizing. I know there are some people that don't like that spin or don't like their tone. I would say that. Um, when you're doing a site like Deadspin and you are on the scale that they're doing it, inevitably there's going to be things where they're going to do and someone's not going to like it. And they're going to say, Oh, I don't like Deadspin now. And then they'll do a story that you really like. And you'll be like, Hey, I like that story. But then we, you know, we, we live in a culture where we remember the negativity more than we remember the positivity. And so I think that sometimes people like Deadspin, I think more than they realize than when sometimes they'll see a headline, they'll be like, see, it wasn't like that when Will did it. And, <laughs> that is not true. For the record, people were yelling at me all the time, just like they're Elliot Deadspin all the time now. That is part of the job. And you know, that's kind of why I have the attitude I discussed earlier. I really feel like part of the job when you work in media is to get yelled at. There were refs. Like we are honestly refs. Our job is to get screamed at. Like people people go to go to sporting events and they read about sports because it does not actually affect their lives. It is a way to get out unpleasant sometimes unaccept socially unacceptable emotions in a place where it's okay and you can the idea i always joke that uh if if i have jumped up in the air and started screaming i'm either watching a sporting event or i've seen a spider 
Like nothing else, <laughs> nothing else gives me that sort of emotions, right? Like I'm a, I, or we walk around the world, we're not constantly jumping up and down screaming. That's what sports are for. Sports are an emotional thing. So the idea that someone that works in media would be like, well, you're not talking to me very nicely. You should, you should try to restrain yourself and be more proper, please. This is sports, man. This isn't proper. This is all entertainment and fun. So I tend to take it with a grain. So I think I've adjusted my view on that a little bit. I think that it's very easy for me to say as a white dude that's been in the media for a long time that, uh, well, uh, I can take you. I you, uh, That's our job to take all this stuff. I think it's a lot harder if you're younger, if you're a woman, particularly in sports media. I think a lot of minority writers have had I, I, people get meaner toward them than they do for uh, toward, toward me. And so I've adjusted my viewpoint a little bit on part of the job descriptions, being able to to take the heat. But I do think that uh, uh, from my perspective, I wrote for a very long time for no money and with no readers. The fact that people are yelling at me because they've read something I've written, that was the goal. I'm happy about it. Now's a good time to remind you, too, that we're not compensating you. Just want to make sure that you're aware. <laughs> okay. I'm you sorry. I, I, have to go. I have a lot of other things I need to do. Uh, Dion, did you know it was like this on the other side when you were on the, on the court? I, I did not. Uh, <laughs> I will say that. And, of course, you, you mentioned it. I was always good to the media, so the media was always good to me. But I have seen some people, you know, not so good with the media. I mean, but I have to go back to Deadspin a little bit. You, mm-hmm. you created this. You watched your baby grow. You, 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 you know, you, you, you breathe life into it. Why'd you leave? <laughs> Uh, you know, that's a good question. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, uh, there's three major reasons, actually. One was the this is the, this is probably the most minor one, but it's probably the most uh, has the best narrative hook, which it was uh, <laughs> when I was doing Deadspin, I um, it the, Gawker, who is who had bought the site, who basically bought the site, hired me to do it. They didn't think it was going to work. So they were just like, just do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. And if it's six months, if if you have more people reading in six months than you do now, maybe we'll keep you on. And maybe we won't, but we'll see. And the site was such a runaway hit and, and such a surprise runaway hit that they were just like, oh, dude, just keep doing what you're doing. Like, do whatever you want. And I took advantage of that and just did exactly the set I wanted to do. Didn't care about traffic. To this day, I've never looked at the traffic number. I don't want to know traffic numbers. I'm trying to make good stuff. And hopefully that catches on with people. But I know that the entire kind of media industry is based on numbers and stats and traffic rates. And I was very and I saw that coming into that. 2008, and I knew I was not going to thrive uh, in that environment. Uh, I always joked that this tells you how old Deadspin is. I always joked that if I wanted to get a bunch of page views, I could just say Deadspin exclusive. Britney Spears not wearing pants, and I would have gotten like a ton of clicks that day. But it would still be a horrible site, and I want to shoot myself at the end of the day. And so uh, I did. I, I as as I kind of went on with Deadspin, it became more and more clear as 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 I think there were some more and more Deadspin imitators or more people kind of like weaponizing what Deadspin was doing. They were just trying to hit numbers and they were just trying to get page views and that's fine it's a business i'm not uh, uh, sconding from the capitalist world but uh i knew that wasn't what i wanted to do and i knew that wasn't what i wanted to do for deadspin specifically so i kind of saw that coming and knew i just i knew that wasn't gonna be a good fit for me uh two was i think deadspin was starting to become uh, a little bit of a cult of personality uh, in a way that I think you see in sports now, a, a lot of sports media now. Uh, the I, I think Barstool Sports is a great example of this where they just kind of have these personalities. And some of those guys I like, like PFT Commoner is a great guy. Uh, Barstool Sports is probably not generally my thing, but like, you know, they they are really into the personality driven uh, sort of stuff. And those people that do those sites, they have to be on all the time. They have to, they have to like create a persona and do like a certain thing. And I, 
I kind of like shutting my phone off and like walking around the world and not being followed. And I knew to do a site like that, you had to be on 24 hours a day. And that's, that's really not my personality. I just kind of wanted to, I, I was fortunate that Deadspin launched when I was 30. So I, I was not like some 22 year old kid, just like in desperate need of attention. Like I felt like I had a pretty good idea who I was already. And I knew that I was not, I didn't want to be a full-time internet personality. And the third reason that, that probably the primary one was I really wanted to challenge myself. You know, I, I, I went to work for New York magazine. That was why I left Deadspin was I went to work for New York magazine and I wanted to work on long pieces. I wanted to work on, I wanted to write about movies. I wanted to write about politics. I, and I think I made the right decision in that regard. I got to cover the 2016 election for Bloomberg, which started out really fun and then got decidedly unfun <laughs> as it went along. Uh, we'll move Surreal along quickly from there. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, um, uh, I, you know, so I, I, for me, I did not just as much as I enjoyed doing Deadspin, I was deeply obsessed with doing Deadspin, became like my all encompassing life. And I did not, I was old enough to realize I don't want to do this for the next 20 years of my life. I'm going to be a shriveled wreck at the end of it. So I wanted, I had other things I wanted to do. Deadspin was a great, it helped, it definitely helped make my name uh, in a way that made me marketable for places like New York and the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and so on. And I wanted to take advantage of that before inevitably, as with everything always happens, uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld always says, you have to get off the stage while people still like you. Mm-hmm. And that would have certainly happened. If I would have stayed at Deadspin longer, there would have been more pressure to push up traffic and I had to do things I didn't want to do. And I would have lost the things that made me me. And so that that was the main reason I left. And, and frankly, also, I left it in such good hands that uh, that I knew as long as those people did a great job making Deadspin bigger, like Deadspin is probably 50 to 100 times bigger than it was when I left it. I had nothing to do with that, but I continued to reap the benefits <laughs> because if, if, if the person that took over Desmond for me would have run it into the ground, everyone would be like, Will, right, didn't you used to run that sign? I don't remember what it was called. Like, it's just my good luck and good fortune that the people that went after me did such a good job that I continue to reap the benefits of it. Well, it's good, good fortune. I mean, and you make your own luck too. And it's, uh, I, I mean, I was going to ask, what was it that, turned it into a runaway hit. Do you know, like anything that uh, you can put your finger on? Uh, there was never one particular story, at least not when I was there. Um, the the biggest story, when I was there, it was more kind of a, it became like a fun thing, right? It became a way, uh, one of the things I knew the site was really catching on is we used to have like these kind of fun catchphrases on the site. They were just a way to show that you were kind of down, like you kind of paying it, like you were, we were like an indie site, you know, we were like a cool hip Brooklyn brand for a while. And uh, it became like a way, like I remember Scott Van Pelt and Keith Oberman, um, uh, like making uh, uh, Deadspin catchphrases, sneaking them into their sports broadcasts and someone like someone at ESPN game day put up a dead spin sign (laughs) what's that so you knew you made it then (laughs) yeah exactly it was funny right like like it was a way to slyly slow show that like hey there's that cool thing everybody's talking about we know what's going on and I I liked that um, but it really never truly blew up it was big it was big when I left I made it into a a bigger thing but it really the story that really blew up dead spin and I think to this day is uh, the real pivot point in Deadspin history uh, is is the Manti Teo story. Uh, mm. Deadspin uh, broke that story uh, right on the eve of um, uh, right basically right after after that national championship game, the Manti Teo's imaginary girlfriend story. Uh, and the thing about that story that was so great it was exactly what Deadspin was. Deadspin's job was to a cover the stories that no one else was covering and b call out 
the 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 sports world's kind of obsession with narrative and obsession with kind of and 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 how they could be kind of lazy and how they and how they just want to be blandly inspirational. Well, here was this blandly inspirational story that nobody bothered to check. And so uh, when Despin had that story, it, that that pivoted the site into something now I think that was that is incredibly massive. Uh, that story, by the way, was edited by Tommy Craig's Urbana resident in my uh, uh, a long time. Uh, uh, a long, uh, he, he betrayed us and went to Northwestern, but he is from Urbana <laughs> and lives in Urbana now. So, uh, you know, that is uh, that was the story. I think I, that was after I had left the site. But that was the story I think really blew up Deadspin into something uh, really massive that uh, I think is still thriving today. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, to be honest, I didn't realize that you guys broke that Manti Teo sound, but I, I remember that, of course, wholeheartedly. You you, you talked about Roger Ebert, and, and like you, I'm, I'm big on mentors. Again, I do a ton of speaking. Roger Ebert, do you have any others that you would consider were, were mentors for you as you um, continue to crap, climb the ladder? Uh, yeah, you know, I think... Um... Uh, Roger Simon, uh, who's a fellow University of Illinois graduate, was a political reporter for the Baltimore Sun, now uh, just retired from Politico a few years ago. Uh, he was very helpful, particularly I'd actually corresponded him with him while I was at the Daily Illini. Um, I, a lot of them are Illinois related, to be honest. You know, the, the, the it's been, I don't need to tell you guys, uh, the state of Illinois has had some budget issues uh, in the last few years. And, and I, I think the, uh, <laughs> uh, slightly, uh, and the school has, uh, uh, has has, has taken some of the brunt of that. And I think that uh, the university, the journalism department has taken the brunt of that. And so that's frustrating to me because, uh, and I think it's still, striving is still doing well, but it's, you know, it's a tough time uh, for the media department. And so that's why I always kind of go back and try to talk to everyone and try to make sure, I don't think I'm a mentor for anyone. If anything, if I talk to a student, I hope they look at me and say, okay, here are the mistakes that he made that I won't, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. That's what you I, want, that's right? Huge. Oh, but, yeah. That's hugely beneficial. They <laughs> and, may not realize yeah. it, but you, yeah, go on. Yeah. 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 And so for me, that is, uh, I, so many of the people that really helped me out are people that I met in college and people that had, and older people uh, that I met in college that came back and talked to us. And then some were from the journalist department, a lot were from the Daily Illini. I was one of those kids that lived at the Daily Illini when I was in college. I, I would get, I would maybe go to one or two classes, maybe, <laughs> and then I would go live <laughs> at the newspaper uh, the rest of the time. And I think that, uh, uh, and because of that, I was able to connect with a lot of people like that and have been very fortunate in that regard. And, you know, I'm uh, uh, I now, you know, it's very weird. And Dion, I'm curious if you feel this way, that I uh, there are people that consider me a mentor, but that doesn't like I certainly don't feel like one. I feel like I feel like like I feel like I'm not, I, if I can help them out, that's great. But, you know, I'm 43 years old and, you know, we're, we're not that old. This is this is not I, I just watched a movie where Clint Eastwood played a 93 year old drug mule. Like I got plenty <laughs> of time. And uh, so like we're not that old. But I, we're all still kind of learning this ourselves, uh, for crying out loud. But I do like uh, the 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 idea of being able to uh, to spend time with uh, with people that are starting out in the business and and are figuring their way through it is fun for me because a maybe I can help them, but just as much I want to learn from them. I need to. You talk about how I do all these different things. A lot of this is finding out. Okay, what are people doing now? What's the best place for me to put my writing now and and to look in this direction? I want to be aware of that because I want to keep uh, working in this field too you know i i there are I, there's been a lot of horror stories in the last few years of like journalists i grew up 
like adoring and just thinking we're brilliant and there aren't jobs for them anymore. <laughs> and then, you know, this, it's been a rough kind of market. So uh, I want to uh, make sure that we all get to keep doing this stuff and, uh, and I get to help other people to do it as well. So that's the fun of it for me. But a lot, so much of it's University of Illinois related. It's so funny what you just mentioned. And I, I get a lot of that from the current and past Illinois teams. And they come up to me like, Mr. Thomas, you know, and, and asking advice and things like that. I'm like, man, please call me Dion. Uh, <laughs> you know, and like you, yes, I want to be able to help and give as much advice, but I still don't see myself as as that older elder statesman, I guess. I mean, I, I was a little shocked when I was back on campus and they pulled out the jersey. They were like, yeah, they're wearing their throwback jerseys today. And they, they put on the jerseys that I wore. I think I, tweet, like, I, think I tweeded that to you. You I sure know, did. Yeah, right when I was you're... on the air, I'm like, throwbacks? Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah, I, I, know, I noticed I was on uh, Lids. I was on Lids website for Christmas and I was like, hey, I like that hat. What, 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 what do they call this hat? They're called dad hats. Like all the way that I wear hats are now oh. known as dad hats so uh so that's a that's another good sign like wow i guess the things that i do are now just the things that old people do age is a state of mind to learn yes it is age is a state of mind hey well i know you don't have a lot of time i I do want to ask you another couple more questions though um I love some of your long form in, in your, your books. You know, you write a lot about the intersection of family and sports sometimes, um, you know, using it as a metaphor. Like, are we winning is a real good example about father and son. And how did you kind of find yourself gravitating to some of those topics? How did you get so comfortable being, you know, even personal about how you talk about some things? Yeah, you know, um, the, I have to say, I'm, I might get emotional here because Dion's actually a part of this. Uh, this is, you know, I grew up, uh, one of the things that I, I feel like we miss actually a lot with Illinois basketball now, as much as I, uh, uh, um, I watch all the games now. When I was a kid, every game in, uh, was on WCIA. Every game was on the Channel 3, the local station. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened to be on CBS programming that night was preempted because the Illini were on. And, you know, I, again, I lived in, I lived in Mattoon, which was basically... You know, I, I would when I got off of school, there were chores outside to be done for like three hours. And if I got them done in time, I got to watch the Illini game with my dad. And and, you know, for a lot of uh, to me, the Illini were this thing and still are really. My dad's still around. He turned 70 uh, next year. Uh, you know, my my father and I are typical Midwestern uh, males. We do not like to talk about emotions or have anything actually going on in our lives. Uh, but you get us together in a room talking about uh, Lou Henson and uh, we get real talkative. And, and, you know, I think that I've always found that fascinating. That's really what sports kind of did for me. And I think do for a lot of people is open up venues for conversation among people that maybe aren't necessarily that skilled at communication and the Cardinals baseball and Illini basketball really were always those two things for us. And, uh, to like, I, I, I remember I had the, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've written four books. I've been able to like, I've like met a president. I've been able to like do all these cool things and, and have my own show and nothing has ever been cooler, uh, than the time that I got to have Steve Bardo on my podcast <laughs> to my father, my father, <laughs> was just like you had to see Barnard and like believe you me the first thing I'm gonna do after they go the after I get this no offense Eric the first thing I'm gonna do is say I just talked to Dion Thomas for a while he's like yeah I still have his poster with Tom Michael on garage I'm like I know I mentioned that uh like for me you know that is that is something that kind of communication um among families and among generations like you know again my dad had eight brothers and sisters and I didn't know anything about those people I didn't even know their names but, but not all of them anyway but when we got together we could talk about Illinois basketball and that to me that is what sports are about and that is you know, I when I think about it now, when you're young, 
you know, all that matters is your team winning. I want to win. I want to, I want my team to yeah. win. I'm so tortured because my team isn't winning. And then you get older and then you want to share it with your children. And then you, when you get a lot older, you look back and realize, actually, I don't really care that they won. I just got, I'm glad I got to watch that with my kid. I'm glad I got to watch that with my family. And that is something that I, that, that, you know, I, so I think about the Cardinals are a good example of this. Someday the Cardinals are going to have entirely new players. They're going to have an entirely new owner. They may play an entirely new stadium. They may not even be in St. Louis for crying out loud. That's not a rumor, by the way, I'm just using it as an example. Um, but my, we're still going to be there. The fans are still going to be there. And I feel like fans are a very underappreciated through line and continuous sports in all of sports. And that's something that I, that's how I got into sports. I got into sports, not because I picked up a book one day or watched a game and said, Hey, this is fun. I'll get into it because my dad wanted, I was something to do with my dad. It was something to, to, that I had an excuse to hang out with my dad for two or three hours. And so to me, that is to, the story of sports for me is the story is a personal story of my family. And I think a lot of people are that way. And I don't feel like sports are covered like that all the time. I think a lot of times we're caught up in. So, uh, uh, Manny Machado hot takes and uh, hey, or uh, a LeBron, uh, uh, LeBron and Durant feuding or something and all that stuff, which can be fun. It's kind of, you know, it's a, a fun little reality show idea. But I really feel like most people actually consume sports through a familial co construct. And uh, so that makes for me, I would I think like I wouldn't be doing my job writing about sports if I weren't covering that part of it. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I'm, I'm actually going to go and pick the book up. I have not I didn't know about it until now. I left coaching for that very reason. I wasn't spending time with my own family. I wasn't spending time with my daughter. So I completely get where um, you meet, what, what you were going through with the conversations with your dad. I wasn't sitting in the gym watching my own daughter play basketball. And yeah. this pretty much her whole high school career. I was able to catch her senior year because I had just decided, you know what? not doing this no more, not missing this time. So I, I clearly understand. I get it. I can't wait to see it. And and I agree with you about the um, the direction of the fans and the importance of the fans. My, my wife, after I would leave every game in Europe, she's like, you're always the last one to leave the gym. And then as my kids started to get over there, I was always like, man, Dad, you're the last one to leave the gym. Why was I the last one leaving the gym? Because I was signing autographs for all of the people that were in the gym. I saw that importance of the people that were sitting there cheering for us as we were running out there on the floor. And I agree with you. I think journalists miss that. And I think a lot of the players far too many times miss that, um, how important the fans are. So thank you for catching that. Oh, please. Oh, please. Well, thank you. And, th and honestly, thank you for, uh, for, uh, for, I'm mean, honestly like, it's embarrassing. Like I basically like on my dad's garage are pictures of you, Tom, Michael, Rennie Clemens. I think there's an Andy Kaufman on there. And then like, uh, tool calendars with women in bikinis from like 1996. He hasn't cleaned out his garage in like a long time. That's what I'm saying. But the point is, is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, uh, that's the through line, you know, and, and, and you know, obviously we haven't really talked about much of Illinois basketball now, but you know, I'll watch them. I can't believe he got seven losses before the bragging rights game, but I'm still watching all of these games. Like this is that it, when I'm watching those games, I'm not just watching, you know, Trent Frazier or I or, or Georgie B I'm watching, you know, Will Tuttle and I'm watching yeah. Tony Weisinger and I'm, you know, I'm watching Bruce Douglas and, and Eddie Johnson, all these people that I grew up watching. It's the through line of my life is, 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 is are these sports. And so I, I, I don't expect a, uh, uh, a player to have to know or understand that. Like, it's nice if they do, that's great. But like, for me, that is, you know, my fandom 
of these teams is actually kind of independent of the teams themselves. Sometimes they're mine, you know, they're like, they're, they're, they are, they, 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 that, that fandom, like it doesn't like I, Kiwan Garris is a great example of this. When I was in college, uh, Kiwan Garris, again, he was a freshman when I was a freshman. And I actually did a piece for the Daily Alliance where he let me go out with him for a night. Uh, we went out drinking for a night and uh, and around the clubs in, 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 uh, in Champagne. Uh, I mean, I'm sure his real fun came once he finally got rid of me. <laughs> I have no doubt. Uh, but it, like like what I wanted to kind of capture was the idea that like, sure, Kiwan Garris is just a kid the way that I am. But when I'm out with Kiwan Garris, I am the 11-year-old kid uh, watching Dion Thomas. And like that, that, and I still kind of am that. I'm I'm 43 years old, and I am what, and I am watching Illinois basketball the same way I watched it when I was 11 years old. And uh, uh, there's really nothing else in the world like that. So I feel like that's an important thing. Well, you're a journalist. You want to ask Deanna any questions about Illinois basketball now? Sure, <laughs> I'm open. Uh, I, 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 do, do you? I, I, it's okay if you don't answer this question, uh, but. Um, do you still boo Auburn every time that they, every time that uh, that guy comes out well, there? Because I, I still do. I will say this: I, I don't boo him. I really just he he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist okay, unless I enough. see him. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I I live I live in Athens, Georgia now, and I have season tickets to Georgia basketball. Uh, I actually thought it's weird because Georgia is the opposite of Illinois. Illinois, I think, is a basketball school first and a football school second. Georgia, right. obviously, is the, is the opposite of that. And they went, went through a coaching search a while back, and they were briefly he was a rumored name to be the coach. And I love my tickets, and I take my boys to the games. I have such a good time. And I was trying to think the of the only way that would make me get rid of my season tickets. <laughs> and it was. Either that or them all deciding to wear on their uniforms. We don't like Will Leach and we want him to go away. Those are the only wow. two ways. I was, but uh, so I was very pleased. It's fun to to, to boo and cheer. I'm sorry. I I feel bad. I even brought him up. To oh you. no, it's yeah, okay. It, uh, it is. Uh, he is. He is beneath our conversation. <laughs> don't worry, Will. We'll cut this part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. Well, now you have Tom Crean. I know it's exciting. It, it, it's fun because you know, what. Georgia basketball needed. I liked Mark Fox. I thought he was actually a pretty good coach, but he was very, you know, he is, he's kind of, uh, listen, I love Bruce Weber, but he's kind of in the Weber mode, right? He's, he's a wonk, you know, and sometimes that can fit, but Georgia basketball needed a hype man. Yep. And that's what Tom Crean is. He is a hype man. Uh, I think he's trying to get his career built back up. I don't think he wants to be at Georgia in 10 years, but I think if he can turn this around and, and get him built up at the next level, I think it would be good for everyone. So uh, uh, it's been fun to watch, um, uh, the two programs now, because I have seen tickets for Georgia basketball, so I go to all their games. But I still like I'm following Illinois much, much, much more closely to watch both programs try to like reconstruct themselves. I'm curious, Dion. This is my one question for you, Dion. Actually, serious about Illinois basketball. You obviously uh, the tail end of your Illinois career, for reasons very different than they're going through this now, was a reconstruction. Like there was a, yeah. there were, there were, it kind of got broken down a little bit uh, because of uh, because of the he who shall not be named, um, <laughs> and um, and. This is really since then what they're going through now is the first time in my lifetime that it's been quite like this, where the team has really struggled and and really had to go through a roster break. You have to just fix the basically just start over and kind of right. reconstruct everything. Complete reconstruction. You're right. Is it is it hard? Like as you kind of went through that process, uh, it's easy for me to have patience. Because I'm a, I'm not in Champagne, so I can just be like, ah, oh, and I'll, they'll make it. I'm, I'm sure they'll get there. But I'm curious, as a player, like it's easy for me to say, okay, it's gonna work, it's gonna work. Uh, it may take two or three years, but I'm 43. I have two or three years. If I'm a sophomore or I'm a junior and I'm in the middle of that process, I'm not 
patient? Is it hard to be a player when a team is going through this kind of reconstruction? Well, I, I can. I, I'm going to answer that question to you for you from two parts. One as a player, one as a coach. As a player, um, no, because you're sure. not thinking about that. Um, your whole drive is about being the best you can be, making the team the best it can be, especially if you're here. Now, the hard part is when they're recruiting you to get you to come here and be a part of that reconstruction process. This is where, you know, a Tom Crean is amazing. This is where a John, uh, a, um, a Brad Underwood is, has shown to be extremely good is getting kids to believe that, they can be a part of something special. And that's putting the program back to where it is. But anytime you go through, and, and I liked Weber, but you go through that era at the end of his um, tenure, and then you go through, you know, John Gross. And I like John too, but I thought he was a terrible recruiter. I didn't think he was right for this level. And it puts you in this place where you are now. So for Io DeSumo to come to the University of Illinois took a lot. You know, because this kid is like, okay, and, and he said it, I, I'm, I'm here to turn the program around. That takes a whole lot of a person, uh, you know, and a player to be able to say that. Trent Frazier said the same thing when he didn't back out of his commitment. So as a player, no, you don't really think of it that way. You're just out there and you're on your grind and you're trying to be the best that you can be. As a coach, of course, you you realize he when Brad came into this uh, situation, he knew what he had, and you know he knew it was going to be rough. He knew it was going to take you know five, three to five years to turn around the culture of what um, John Gross left behind to get in the right players to be and play a totally different style than what they played before. Uh, so he knew it. It's easier when you know it. The kids don't really pay much attention to that once they're here. I think they're just on their grind and trying to get better. It's probably more hell for the fans than anything else <laughs> because they're the ones that are really chomping at the bits, remembering that 05 team, remembering that flying the line I team. And even when I was here, like you said, it was we weren't great, but we weren't horrible either. Um, and all of our games were competitive, you know, for people to remember those eras. And, and for what they have today, but like I always tell them, man, we got a bunch of babies playing. We got a bunch of freshmen, <laughs> sophomores. I mean, what do you expect? Relax. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Hey, tell us uh, how we can follow you. Where do you want us to, to chase down all the things you're up to these days? Uh, the best way, the best, the best uh, way to find it all is uh, is go to tinyletter.com slash William F. Leach. Just search me, uh, William uh, Will Leach, and my Twitter and Wikipedia come up, and the newsletter is off of there. I write a weekly newsletter that links to everything that I write and make throughout the week, uh, and has its own uh, unique essay uh, uh, every Saturday that comes out. That's the best way to kind of follow everything. I'm really bad at Twitter. I usually kind of only use Twitter. I use Twitter for three things: uh, to promote the things that I do. Uh, to lament the death of, uh, of a celebrity that I enjoyed uh, and to complain and, and to yell and complain and cheer about Illinois basketball and St. Louis Cardinals baseball. That's really what I use Twitter for. Uh, some people are on it all the time, but uh, I don't know if I'm a particularly great Twitter follow, but uh, on, on, on tiny letter, tiny letter.com slash William F. Leach. And the last thing I'll say about Illinois basketball, this season has been, uh, uh, it's been a difficult early start. Uh, beat Missouri. And I'm going to be okay with a lot of stuff. <laughs> you I'm beat Missouri, you. and we are cool for a few months. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Awesome. Well, thanks you so much for the time. I'm gonna, we're going to close things up here again. As always, thanks to the Painless Networking, the Painless Podcast Network, and Chris Hartwig. 
Uh, Will, you might be interested in this. Somebody in the sports world or people who aspire to work in it, you can get connected with Painless Networking on social media or at www.painless.network. And lastly, we have our own social media. Then we are also not great on Twitter, but you know we're going to post everything that we've been doing. <laughs> I give us link that to my give, account. Yeah, you That's do probably. You do. have all the followers. You know, uh, give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram if you haven't already, and please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you wind up listening to us. We'd love for you to rate and re- review us on those sites as well. Uh, thank you for listening. Now that hoop season is here, be sure to catch Dion on the Big Ten Network and Fighting Illini Radio, where he talks about those baby Illini, right? I sure do. And you can occasionally see yours truly covering some of the top high school stars in the Chicago area on Comcast. Uh, for Dion Thomas and me, and this might be the fadeaway with Dion Thomas and Tom Michael the next time you listen to <laughs> it, uh, we will meet you down low on the next fadeaway. Swish. Swish.